we also observe when they're building the spiral, sometimes they'll pause, they go toward the center, they start testing the radii all of a sudden, and then they go right back to where they left off. So we're not entirely sure what's happening there. We're, we're assuming that it's either A, some sort of error assessment, they're just checking the web out to try to understand, oh, is everything okay? Or maybe um, they are uh, um, tightening the lines. So in our, in our published work we just published, um, the way we did the experiments, we could really see the legs of the spider really well, but we couldn't see the silk or the web structure at all. So all of our analysis was based on the legs. But in our current work, we set it up so that we can image both the silk and the legs at the same time. And so our current work, we're trying to understand what is happening to the web when they do these error assessments. Are they just checking the lines out and testing them or are they actually replacing them? Um, we're really curious to know. The progression of web phases might reflect the progression of these different sort of arousal states. Or, and we think that because there's past work that has been done where they gave different drugs to spiders and the drugs changed different parts of the web. And so that implies that those drugs changed different behaviors that resulted in those changes in the web. Um, those drugs target neuromodulatory pathways in the brain, so it shows that these neuromodulatory pathways were being used differently in different stages of web building. So we would like to build a map of these pathways in the behavior and perhaps show that the the map of the web is a mapping of these different chemical pathways uh, in the brain. In this podcast, I'm sharing my passion and curiosity for soft robotics, where we share inspiring stories about the work we do and how we can push the limit. I am Mara Dweeney, and this is Soft Robotics Podcast. Support for this show comes from Science Robotics Journal. I really find Science Robotics to be a great resource for reliable and tangible research where we can really push the limit of the science we do in robotics. Great way to stay up to date with the published article is checking out the released monthly issue. All the links will be included in each episode description. We will also happen to have a regular conversation on the most published science robotic articles where also you can contribute with your question and thoughts about their research. Thanks Science Robotics for sponsoring Soft Robotics Podcast. First of all, I, when I, I see your research, it's very interesting, especially in soft robotics field, spiders. Uh, you already working also in the worm as well. But for spiders, because I think it's very interesting, there are many questions not answered. For you, what makes you very interested in these two examples, the spiders and the worm? What, what makes you inspired to work in that? So <clears throat> for the worms, I like using them because um, they're the only animal where we have detailed maps of every neuron and every synapse in their brain. And so you can understand behavior at the single neuron level, um, which is challenging to do with animals with larger brains. With the spiders, I'm interested in them because of uh, their orb weaving. So I'm specifically interested in orb weaving spiders the ones that produce those classic webs with all the spokes in the, in the spiral. And 
<clears throat> I got interested in it because it's such a fascinating behavior that requires a lot of behavioral coordination over time and space. And there aren't a lot of good behavioral paradigms in neuroscience that require coordinating behaviors with such fidelity over time and space like that. And I'm really curious to understand how their brains organize those behaviors. First of all, I think when you publish your work about how spider build their web and especially this type of spider, and it's fascinating how they can do that, this kind of complex behavior and have the elegant shape of the web design. And they don't even use the vision system. So what a question did you ask uh, given literature that how spider build the web and they didn't use a vision and have this elegancy in the design? So <clears throat> prior, to my, to, prior to my work, there has been a lot of great research into spider web building. <clears throat> And um, we knew that the web is built in phases. Um, so there are different phases of, of web building the spider goes through. And those represent the different uh, components of the web. Uh, for example, the, the radii and, the, and the, um, the frame of the web are, are um, uh, built before the spirals are built. And different parts of the web use different types of silk. And what I was interested in, in understanding was what are all the small behaviors involved in building the web? How does the spider coordinate its legs in building this web? Because, um, you know, a lot of prior work treated the spider as a point in, in space and time. And you can track out the web based upon where the spider is. But they do a lot of really interesting behaviors with their legs. Um, so, I, so in trying to understand how the behavior is coded in the brain, what we first need to understand is what is the problem at hand. So the brain encodes movement, and we want to know what those movements are. And as you mentioned, they build them blindly. So many orb weavers build in the dark. So they build under dark conditions when they build the web. But there are also some orb weavers that build during the day. But even the ones who build during the day, the spider eyes are are on their dorsal sort of. They they, they can't see what their legs are doing. So basically, all of this building is happening with their legs and they, they, they don't use their vision to look at their legs. So it's all based on touch. Um, so the first question we wanted to answer was what are the rules involved in web building? What is the dance the spider performs in building the web? And then once those are defined, we can start perturbing the behavior with drugs or um, a variety of biological techniques to um, perturb signaling pathways in the brain and ask how do those perturbations alter the behavior. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting. You mentioned already that um, they use, for example, special memory and bus integration. But how this, if you can't explain or simplify, what does it mean that they can build? Like, we know that this, this kind of web design, they design for purpose. If there's damage, I, I think that's something I found interesting. If there's a damage happening in the part of the web, the whole structure still stand. Uh, and I think that's that's very intelligent, uh, the way they design it. Yeah, so they're capable of doing error correction. Um, so if there's a hole in the web, they will go back and fix it. And there's a lot of classic work where researchers will poke a hole in the web and the spider will go through and try to fill it in. So I, I think that shows that the behavior itself it isn't just this reflexive behavior that the 
spiders performing like some robot. There's constantly error assessment happening when they're building the web uh, to ensure that the final structure has good structural fidelity. Um, so yeah, that's something we're, we're interested in is how, like how does the spider know what phase of web building it is, it, it's in and how can it exit in and out of, or exit and enter these different phases of web building? Um, there's a standard progression of web building. First, you build a proto-web, which is thought to be this exploratory part of web building. Then they take that down. They build the radii and frame, an auxiliary spiral, which stabilizes the radii, and then a, a capture spiral. They spiral up a back toward the center and build the, the sticky part of the web. And while they do that, they take down the auxiliary spiral. But um, uh, as we observed, this progression of um, uh, web building phases um, often occurs proto radii auxiliary um, a capture spiral, but there are instances where the, the spider can exit a certain phase of web building and go back and you know reassess radii or reassess auxiliary spiral and then return to where it was. So it shows there's this constant assessment and ability to um, sort of um, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a it's a plastic behavior. Um, so I think that gives some indication that they have some sort of um, cognitive map or, or intent. Um, oh, that's what I'm looking for. They have a, uh, an, I, you know, an idea of what they want to build. They're constantly comparing that to the reality around them. And if it doesn't match, perhaps they go back and try to fix the error. Expectation. They have an expectation of what to expect in their environment. Mm -hmm. And how they sense the prey and, and the way they design the web, the sensing, how they send that. And if there's also, you mentioned, if there's something, a hole in the web, how they figure out that as well, this kind of decision they do right. for both sensing. So, yeah, so the spiders we use, they like to hang in the center of the web. And that's ideal. it's an ideal location for sensing uh, vibrational perturbation to the web because the radii are the primary load-bearing part of the web. And so when it, when you vibrate the web, a lot of the power goes along the radii and the hub is where all those radii converge. So it's an ideal location uh, to sense where things are in the web. We're currently doing some experiments where we drop flies on the web or vibrate a part of the web to see how the spider moves its legs to gauge where things are in the web. And if the spider is not in the center, if it's somewhere else away from center, and it senses some general perturbation, um, the first it doesn't go straight toward the fly or the perturbation. It goes toward the hub first, does an assessment, and then goes out toward the uh, prey location. Um, so yeah, they're, they're they're pretty remarkable when it comes to integrating vibrational information from the web and trying to navigate toward those perturbations. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Even there's maybe different design for the web the, and the spiders. They have different shape. The classical one you mentioned, the orb, and the others have really complex shape. Like they have this kind of cavity inside. How do you do that? It's, if we speak a different species in the spiders, in which basis they design their web? Oh, the, you mean other uh, spiders like cobwebs yes. and stuff? Yeah, they have that's different, good, yeah, different That's shape. a good question. So uh, you know, not all spiders um, build webs. In fact, your 
the earliest evolved spiders don't build any sort of web. They just use silk for their egg sacs. Um, and uh, other spiders, like your know, tarantulas, they don't necessarily build webs, but they line their burrows with silk. Um, presumably, that provides some um, um, sensory gain to try to sense vibrations outside their hole, um, or outside their tunnel, uh, a burrow. Um, so, you know, there's a variety of different uses of silk have evolved with spiders. And yeah, these you know, sheet uh, weavers, they, they, they build sheet webs, you have cobwebs, you have some uh, spiders like the denopids, they're called, sometimes called ogre-faced spiders, or net casters, where they um, build their web and then they, they hold a part of it at the ends of their legs and then cast it to catch prey. So they kind of expand their legs and wrap or sort of capture prey with this net at the end of their legs. Um, so yeah, I, I found all those all those behaviors really interesting. And one hypothesis proposed is that maybe different sort of behavioral rules used in web building, maybe many of them um, exist in other webs, and different web structures are the result of organizing those rules differently. Um, it's a hypothesis put out by Bill Eberhard, uh, who recently wrote a book actually uh, called Spiderwebs. I would say he's probably the most knowledgeable person on spiders and spiderwebs. Um, but in order to test that hypothesis, I think we need to have a better understanding of what the behaviors are in the first place. And I would say our work is sort of the first little step in trying to define all these behavioral rules in a systematic way. Yeah, I'm curious about if there is still any other questions or intriguing uh, behavior that still you can't really figure out, or maybe in literature, how they already do that behavior. There's any factors or interesting behavior or complex behavior besides building the web? I think there are lots of really remarkable behaviors. Um, for example, the males, they... Uh, pluck the lines as they approach the females they're giving they're communicating through vibrations in the web to her uh, so they can successfully mate um, and that's common amongst spiders there are other uh, types of spiders where they drum they drum the surface of, of the ground as they approach the female and do visual displays um, so I, I think those are interesting behaviors um, I mean, as I mentioned, the one behavior we're focusing on as well as prey capture behavior, like how do they tune their legs to understand what the vibrations are and where they're coming from? Because their vibrational sensors are in the joints of their legs. Um, and there was uh, some really interesting work um, um, uh, by Matra et al., uh, where they looked at the, the pose of black widows um, on a web in different contexts and showed that their legs you know, vibrate differently in those different contexts. Um, so I, I think that's really interesting. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, since we work already in understanding this behavior and complex environment, for spiders, how do you see the, the relation between the brain? Since you mentioned it's really smaller than the fly and they have these legs and they don't use vision and, and build in the dark. So this kind of 
I don't know, synchronization between the decision and their body and the legs and sensing. Which one do you think is more dominant in taking decision or building or whatever this kind of behavior? How do you see the synchronization between the brain and the features they have in the body to sense vibration? If you can tell us more about that. Um, yeah, so, you know, I, I, with these spiders, uh, touch, I think, is their primary sensory modal modality. So for these orb weavers, they have re really reduced vision. In fact, when we look at their brain, compared to other spiders, um, the optic neural pills, the parts of their brain that process vision, are pretty much absent. <laughs> so, they, I mean, they have projections from their eyes to their brain, but they don't have these large glomeruli, these large sort of brain centers for um, uh, encoding vision. So it's, it's all based on touch. Um, and uh, I think when it comes to um, sensing things on their web, I think they're just waiting for, you know, something to, to vibrate and they try to assess the location um, of the prey and try to assess whether they should go toward it or not. Um, if we, uh, if we, you know, if we put a fly on the web, the spider will go toward it and tap it a few times then wrap it up and eat it. But if we put a little piezo on the web to vibrate it at defined frequencies, the spider will go toward it and then realize it's not prey and it'll just cut a large hole out so that the piezo stops bothering their web. Uh, which I also think is interesting because I think out in the wild, you know, things will hit the web, a leaf or a branch or something. You don't want that constantly agitating your web. And so they'll just, you know, cut a hole around it and prevent it from from disturbing their web again. So I think that's also interesting. Like at what point do they decide, oh, this isn't food. I think I'll just cut out a hole here so it'll stop bothering me. That's interesting. So you mentioned the end of the error and this kind of error and correction when they build the web. Given the size of the spider, do you think how the tell themselves that that's the right side for building the web and that's let's stop building here because i think there's inspiration behind the web design for example if we have like three stages four stages how do you make a decision that's enough or that's small i don't know if that's a relevant question or doesn't make sense to you the decision to build the side of the web yeah i think there is a variety of different types of decision making happening i think it's hypothesized that the proto web is a stage where they're kind of building all these random lines all over the place. And it's thought to be some sort of assessment of the environment. They're assessing where are good anchor points? Is this a stable place to build a web? If they're perturbed during that stage of web building, they typically don't finish building the web. And at a certain point, they decide this is a good place to build a web. And they'll start building the, the radii. Um, as they build the radii, they constantly go toward the center of the web presumably because they're trying to assess the radii density and they want to reach an ideal density of a, a radii. Um, and yeah, but then we, we also observe when they're building the spiral, sometimes they'll pause, they go toward the center, they start testing the radii all of a sudden, and then they go right back to where they left off. So we're not entirely sure what's happening there. We're, we're assuming it's either A, some sort of um, error assessment. They're just checking the web out to try to understand, oh, is everything okay? 
or maybe um, they are uh, um, tightening the lines. So in our in our published work we just published, um, the way we did the experiments, we could really see the legs of the spider really well, but we couldn't see the silk or the web structure at all. So all of our analysis was based on the legs. But in our current work, we set it up so that we can image both the silk and the legs at the same time. And so our current work, we're trying to understand what is happening to the web when they do these error assessments. Are they just checking the lines out and testing them, or are they actually replacing them? Um, we're really curious to know. Mm -hmm. That's very fascinating. Um, of course, about all the materials they produce. And so I think also for robotics, we speak about this material they produce, the silk is stiff and tough. And I think that's very challenging in material perspective. From biology, do you think it's interesting to understand how they can produce such material that maybe be stiffer than it's steel and they have this kind of toughness as well. Yeah, I think if, you know, when it comes to spider research, I think if you just Google spider research, a lot of it is silk research, trying to understand properties of the silk and how it's made and how to make synthetic silk. And there are a variety of small companies devoted to try to make synthetic silk. It's it's a surprisingly challenging um problem to make synthetic silk. The proteins are uh, large and unwieldy, and uh, I tip my hat off to everyone who's uh, trying to uh, make synthetic silk. It's, it's, it's a challenging problem. Mm -hmm. But um, I don't know if there's any reasons, like explanation, how they can produce that? Well, the, the way the spider makes uh, silk and the way we make silk are totally different. Um, yeah, I mean, there, there's a lot of research in trying, trying to understand what's happening in the silk glands and, um, you know, the, the process of making silk involves not only sort of these proteins coming out of solution in a controlled way, but it also involves shear forces, um, as the, uh, this silk solution is pulled out of the glands and it involves pH changes. Um, you know, I, I think it, it's its own active area of research. Um, yeah, the, the way the spider's doing it, it's very different than how we do it. Typically, when we make, you know, humans make proteins, you introduce the gene into bacteria or yeast and have, you know, these microorganisms produce the protein on a large scale and you bust them open and purify the protein. Um, and that's very different from how a spider does it. And uh, mm. yeah, it's uh, it's challenging. Yeah. Before going to the worm, I have a lot of questions maybe here about if the spider lose one of its legs. We have an episode, we had an episode about uh, the oxbow and if they lose one of the tentacles, how they can redistribute the control. It's a hypothesis that like what is happening for spider, if they lose part of their legs, would it make a difference in the decision here? Yeah, so uh, I think it's either Bill Eberhard or Fritz Voras. I can't remember. There, ha there has been work done on removing legs of spiders and seeing how it affects their web building. If you just remove, I mean, they can still they will still try to execute the building of the web if you know one leg is removed. Um, but when you start removing pairs of legs, it starts to make it very challenging. Um, 
you know, the, the most posterior legs are really important for um, controlling the silk and manipulating it as it comes out of the um, the silk spigots. The the most anterior legs are really important for assessing the web. They do all this tapping motion, kind of like you know, you know a blind person tapping with with, with a cane. Um, and then the, the uh, medial legs, the ones in the middle, they're constantly holding on to the web as the spider does all these manipulations with the anterior and posterior legs. So um, they're all performing important functions. And if you remove pairs of them, um, you know, it makes it challenging. The morphology and the shape of the spider, given that they have these remarkable features, it seemed that even for, for octopus, for example, the octopus start there in the evolution life, if I remember that, like snail, and they have the hard shell, and over the time, they lose the hard shell and become fully soft. And that's make them more intelligent because they are, don't have the hard shell. So it's kind of a changes. And when we look to spider, they have this kind of morphology shape. And it, it easily can be killed by anyone. It's not like hard. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. Do you, do you ever think there's a reason behind the design, the way they designed already the shape of the spider? The shape? Of, I mean, a, a lot of you know, anatomy is the result of selective pressures that happened a long time ago and are not necessarily present now. And sometimes anatomical uh, solutions are not the, you know, I would consider the ideal solution, but sometimes when animals are evolving, they get sort of pigeonholed into a certain developmental uh, pipeline and it's difficult to back up and change uh so you know for example um you know like uh, like our eyes the, you have your retina and all the wiring all the neurons are on top of the photoreceptors so all the light has to pass through all the wiring right now that seems totally backwards like an octopus as you mentioned it's the other way the light goes through the retina and all the wiring's behind the eye which seems makes seems to make a lot more sense now you could ask, well, why are our eyes backwards? And the answer is, well, just the developmental program that evolved, you know, that was the solution, and it's kind of stuck. It's difficult to rewire a developmental program and go backwards, you know. With spiders, um, as I mentioned, the first spiders that evolved, they were not web builders. They were these terrestrial hunters. And uh, the spiders, their eight legs, they don't have extensor muscles. They just have flexors. Um, so they extend their legs. They have to use hydraulics. They have to apply pressure, kind of like you know, inflating a balloon. It, it'll extend their legs, um, and that seems kind of weird. But with spiders, you know, these early spiders, they had to tackle their prey and inject them with venom, and so they have an incredibly strong grip because they have these. Their, their legs are basically all flexors. You know, it, was like, it would be like me having just biceps. I'd be really good at like, you know, giving someone a really strong bear hug. Um, so, so they evolved a weird hydraulic system you know, because they have these really strong grips. And if you added extensors, their legs would be really bulky. You know, it, would be, it would decrease the maneuverability. Um, but then when it comes to these web builders, they don't need to do that and you start evolving these very very thin legs and start evolving these body shapes that uh, are not as well balanced as these terrestrial hunters you know and so um when it comes 
to, to web builders, I don't know if, you know, eight legs is ideal for web building, maybe fewer or maybe more, but they're kind of, you know, eight, this eight leg program, it's difficult to, um, to change in general, when it comes to developmental programs in biology, as you go further and further and further back in time, it's more and more and more difficult to change those because if you mutate something really far back in time, it has a snowball effect later on. It's a lot easier to development to mutate genes later on in development because they have, you know, the, the, the impact will not impact as much of the body. That's very interesting. So for the worm, for example, I think in the, even some philosophers speak about the intelligence. And from biology, I think there's some creatures that you don't have the brain and they exhibit intelligence through the body uh, slowly. So how do you see the intelligence that can be exhibited only through morphology of the body? For example, the worm, uh, they don't have a brain like the, the spider, if, uh, if you can correct me about that. Yeah, I think intelligence is difficult to really assess. I mean, even with humans, I would say it's difficult to assess. Um, you know, there are all these different metrics of, you know, can you solve problems and stuff? And, you know, I, I, I'm obviously, I would say, more intelligent than the worms I research. But I also have, you know, 100 billion neurons. So it's a lot more than the worms I research only have 300 or 302. There's a small debate about the exact number. But, so you know that's a far fewer number of of neurons, and so I, um, there's a uh, a researcher at Caltech, Michael Dickinson, who researches fruit flies, or I guess they're called vinegar flies. I did just off Lamagaster, and uh, he likes to argue that the correct assessment isn't whether you know brains are bigger or more intelligent; it's the ratio of um, the uh, behavioral repertoire an organism has relative to the number of neurons it has. And I would say the worms and spiders, despite having just a you know, sm w much smaller number of neurons than we have, um, they still can produce very sophisticated behaviors. And I would say that's pretty impressive given the small number of, of neurons they have. And so in some ways, I think their brains are a little more impressive than ours simply because they're able to do so much with so little. So, since we close the end, I have a few questions for you. What are maybe the outcome, do you think, behind the understanding of spider or, for example, worm? Do you think it would leverage maybe in maybe engineering solutions, especially for building web? I'd say maybe for AI. You know, a, a lot of behavioral paradigms that are researched in neuroscience are these... Uh, Short time scale behaviors, you know, grooming behaviors, reaching behaviors, song behaviors, behaviors where you can trigger a certain number of, of neurons and it'll execute some program. But with the spiders, I'm interested in how the brain can organize multiple behaviors over a long time scale. So not just doing, executing one behavior, but how can you organize multiple behaviors? And I think that's a, a challenging problem. And it, because um, the brain can encode all these different behaviors, but how do you organize them in a way that has good fidelity and in a way that's plastic that allows you to go back and redo things? Um, and so with the spiders, I'm interested in trying to understand these basic principles of how does the brain organize behaviors um, or 
you know, these specific sensory motor programs. Um, and I think having the web as this physical manifestation of these different phases of the behavior is a, is a useful tool for trying to understand, you know, how do these different signaling pathways in the brain encode or alter how these phases occur? Cause that gives you an insight into how those chemical pathways are encoding and altering the underlying behaviors that produced those changes in the web. Um, with the worms, we're interested in a sort of a, even more detailed knowledge of how the biases in the neural network itself at the single neuron level, how do those uh, influence behavior? Uh, so do you think also the, the learning for them decline when they have lifespan or did you think it interesting for you or not? Or not make sense at all? Uh, I mean, the spiders, they don't really learn to build the web. They're born with this ability so we can hatch spiders and keep them in isolation and they'll build perfectly fine webs. The fidelity of the web does, or the, the structure, the structural symmetry of the web decreases with age. Um, once the spiders start laying egg sacs, the quality of the web start to go down. Um, and, uh, and I'm not entirely sure whether that's a result of physical ability or maybe motivation. I'm, I'm not entirely certain. With, with octopuses, for example, after they mate, they basically just give up on life. They just stop eating and just say, you know, we, we've done our, our purpose on this planet. Now it's time for us to die so the next generation can take over. And so with the website, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure if it's a sign of cognitive de decline or just a sign of the spider deciding. You know, yeah, we had an episode with some. Uh, yeah, I think it's interesting that you bring octopus because we had an episode with um, uh, my octopus teacher, uh, Professor Jennifer Master. And, and the question about why, for example, since of biology we speak about, why, for example, octopus take a decision like that to end their life after mating? What's the decision for that? Why do you do that? In a lot of animals, once they have successfully um, mated or produced offspring, you know, there's very little selective pressure to stay around if you're producing a new generation that's healthier and more fit if to ensure that you're this next generation that you, you know, provided genetic information for survives. Um, you know, once, yeah, it, it's better to sort of, I mean, some animals like give their lives, like in some spiders, this, when the spiderlings hatch, they eat the mother, you know? Um, so it, it depends. I mean, with humans, you know, we have a very long develop, developmental timing. So it, there's selective pressure for the parents to exist for longer to ensure that the progeny survive and reach adulthood um yeah i'm also curious to ask you one of the behavior because you're interested in behavior the black widow why they really eat their partners after if i understood it is also explanation for that oh yeah you know there's lots of examples of uh <laughs> males being consumed 
in uh, in the mating pro, you know, praying mantises do this too. There's different sorts of selective pressures in different systems and spiders and some other arthropods. The females tend to be much lo- larger than the males. It's a major physical investment for the female to produce all these eggs. And so the male is really just a reservoir of additional genetic information to diversify the population. Um, and with spiders, you know, it's on the one hand, the, uh, the female might just be selecting for a very strong and fit male. So if the male isn't strong enough to fight his way to success, successfully mating, he's not really worth, you know, um, accepting his genetic genetic information. So the female eats him. If the, the male is successful, then his job is done. And in some species, the male lets himself be eaten <laughs> because... He's done his part. He may as well provide a meal to the female so that she can remain healthy and produce healthy offspring that he invested, you know, his time and energy in. Um, yeah. <laughs> this, any highlights in your research or moment that this was counterintuitive or surprising, very exciting through the journey of your research? Um, do you have any highlights that was very intriguing or counterintuitive to what you what you already understood before i was surprised by how plastic the phases of web building were the paradigm is that the spiders just kind of go through these stages stage one stage two stage three stage four but you know when we observe the spiders they're pretty flexible they could go stage one stage two back to stage one stage two stage three there was kind of a lot of flexibility there. And when we look at the final webs, the webs look totally fine. And so you wouldn't have known, looking at the web, that the spider took some non-canonical path to build this web. You know, And so that, that was kind of surprising to us how flexible the program was. And I think kind of intriguing to show that the perhaps the spider has some sort of cognitive um, idea of, you know, the of a web and they're trying to achieve that goal. Um, and so it's not just this reflexive program it's going through, it's it's a flexible program. That was surprising to us, or at least to me, to, to see that. Yeah, that's very interesting. And maybe related because you mentioned the innate, when you learn something and have the innate, and this is why they also have something like that, so you have this innate on learning or how it works. Do you think there's correlation here also about innate and learning? Yeah, I mean, with the web building, I think there's very little learning involved. It's just, it's a behavior that um, that has evolved in them. I, I think when it comes to learning for the spider, they may learn with regard to where's the, a good place to build a web, and they may associate environments with good places to build. Um, yeah, but but the web building itself, it's they don't have to observe another spider building the web. It's it's innate. They, the drive and ability to build the web is there at birth. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. So I don't know what your aspiration, maybe the end of the day when you think, what are you, your goal or aspiration you want to achieve through this research or maybe in general here? For the web, I'd like to know, there are these chemical pathways in the brain called neuromodulators. They're chemicals that 
alter the strength of synapses in the brain. In some ways, they kind of rewire the brain um, to uh, or rewire a network to to perform def- differently. And they're important for arousal states and moods and emotions and whatnot. And uh, and these pathways exist in all animals, the worms I research, the spiders. Um, and I'm interested in seeing how the web, the progression of web phases might reflect the progression of these different sort of arousal states or neuromodulatory states in the web, in, in, in the brain. And we think that because there's past work that has been done where they gave different drugs to spiders and the drugs changed different parts of the web. And so that implies that those drugs changed different behaviors that resulted in those changes in the web. Um, those drugs target neuromodulatory pathways in the brain, which so shows that these neuromodulatory pathways were being used differently in different stages of web building. So we would like to build a map of these pathways in the behavior and perhaps show that the the map of the web is a mapping of these different chemical pathways uh, in the brain. Very interesting. I don't know if you have any final words or thoughts you would like uh, to say about, uh, yeah, the audience on BD. Any final words you'd like to say? You know, we, we're surrounded by really magical living systems. I, you know, I think spiders are really enchanting and mysterious and wonderful, but there are so many other organisms around us that are so interesting and capable of so many interesting feats. And, um, you know, I, I, I just encourage people to just, when you're outside, just pause and appreciate how impressive these different, you know, computational mechanical systems that have evolved on this planet to solve all these different sorts of problems. And we just, we have just a, you know, a really shallow understanding of how all these systems work. And I think there's a wealth of knowledge to be gained from understanding how different animals on this planet have evolved different strategies for solving a variety of different computational problems. And uh, I think there's a lot to learn. Yeah, maybe a quick question here. What other organisms do you think, maybe besides the spider, do you think very intriguing? And maybe source of inspiration? Besides the spider, I have all sorts of pet animals I would love to research beside the spider. Um, right now, I think cephalopods, like octopuses and cuttlefish, I think are really amazing. They, they're having incredible cognitive abilities, and we know very little about how their brains work, in part because it's so challenging to do brain recordings with them. But I, I think they're fascinating. You know, their ability to camouflage, to look at, at their environment and change the color of their skin to match their surroundings, not just the color, but the patterning of it. I think it's so amazing, and I would love to know how that works. Mm-hmm.